Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, and we plan to do verses 1 to 16. I don't think we'll get through verses 1 to 16, but we'll get as far as we can, and we'll read those verses this morning. Good thing about preaching consecutively through a book is if we don't get to it this week, we get to it next week. Amen. Matthew chapter 26. And if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then... One of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment on, from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of our Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So when you flip back to verse 1, And you see the opening line, when Jesus had finished these sayings, Matthew is letting us in on this fact that Jesus has now brought to an end the discourse about the last things that we had been looking at in chapters 24 and 25. The events that would lead up to the end, the description of his return on the clouds in power and great glory, all of the warnings and the exhortations and encouragements to live life here and now on earth in light of his return, of his certain and guaranteed return, have now come to a close. And Matthew will now turn his attention on narrating the the last day of Christ's earthly life. After outlining all of these things for the disciples, when Jesus finished these sayings, he turned his attention to preparing the disciples for his betrayal, his arrest, and his crucifixion, which were, 
at this point when Jesus says these words, set to begin in just a few hours. And so, verse 2, he said to his disciples, you know that after, the, that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. I think Matthew really wants you to understand and to see and to note the, the contrast here between what Jesus had just told the disciples and what he is going to tell them now. Just a few minutes earlier, Christ had revealed to them that he will one day return in power and glory. He revealed to them that he is the king who will sit on his glorious throne before whom all the nations and all the peoples of the world will be gathered before him on the last day. But before we see Christ on the throne, before we see him return in such majesty and power and glory, before our eyes, before the eyes of the disciples... He must endure the shame and the humiliation of crucifixion at the hands of wicked, rebellious, God-hating men. Jesus made it clear, the path to his glory winds through the suffering of the cross. And chapter 26 narrates for us or describes for us the day and the night on which Jesus was arrested, betrayed and arrested and tried before the high priest and the Jewish council. And begins by announcing once again what Jesus will endure in just a few short days. Now we know Jesus had been preparing his disciples for this for a while now. He's already said it three times in Matthew's gospel. If you flip back to chapter 16, verse 21, we read this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And again, in the very next chapter, chapter 17, verses 22 to 23, for a second time, he told them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And a third time he said to them, as they were headed to Jerusalem for this, the final week of his earthly life, the week that the, throughout church history we have called the Passion Week, we call it the Passion Week because the events of this week display to us and for us the depths of Christ's love for his sheep. And as we learn about these events of this, final, of this final few days, you see that none of it will catch him off guard. And all of it describes and shows for us just how far our precious Lord will go to save all of you who believe. Jesus knew exactly where he was going. He knew exactly what he was doing. Again, look at verse 2. He told them, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up. He knew the timing. He knew the when. He knew the how. And even though he knew all of this, Luke tells us that when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
meaning Jesus was both willing and determined to enter Jerusalem during this week in order to suffer for you and I in our place. To accomplish everything necessary to ensure your forgiveness provided you believe in his name. During this week, Jesus became what the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, verse 2, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. And what was the joy set before him? You see that in the writer of what the Hebrews, what the writer of Hebrews said, right? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. What is the joy that is set before him? What compelled Jesus Christ to go to the cross? What compelled him to endure the humiliation and the shame of all these events that came upon him during this Passion Week? There's a couple of things. First, the glory of God the Father. By the saving work of Christ, God, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.26, is proven to be both just in that the wickedness of sin is not simply passed over, but the full weight of his holy, perfect justice is poured out in judgment against it because God is righteous and holy and perfect. And at the very same time, in Christ, God is also the justifier of the one who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning... That for all of us who believe who, in Jesus, who took upon himself the necessary judgment and punishment for sin in our place, God can now make a pronouncement, a glorious, wonderful, excellent, amazing pronouncement about you if you call out and in belief. And you know what that pronouncement is? Forgiven, righteous, holy. By virtue, all of this is by virtue of Christ's perfection, which he applies to your account, which he credits to you in full accordance of every single last jot and tittle and requirement set out in the law of God. Jesus fulfilled it all that you might be saved. You are the joy that was set before him. Your salvation is the joy that was set before him. Christ endured it all for the joy of saving your soul if you believe in his name. He endured it all so that he might lavish upon you unspeakably wonderful, blessing, wonderful blessings, the greatest of which being eternal life with him, provided you believe in his name. And while the disciples couldn't yet understand all of this, Jesus still announced it to them for the third time in Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. As they entered Jerusalem for this final Passion Week, Jesus said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Again, you see it, right? The events that Jesus will endure in Jerusalem during this week, they come as no surprise to him. He knows exactly what is about to happen, and he still purposefully and resolutely sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And note the timing. It was during the Passover celebration. 
If you recall, the Passover was, and the Passover still is, for many Jewish peoples, a feast that commemorates the Lord's deeds in the tenth and final strike against Egypt, the death of all the firstborn in that nation. And it's no accident that Christ's passion occurs during this particular event. It's actually quite purposeful. It's purposeful that the shedding of Jesus' blood would occur on this, the most important of all Jewish holy days. Let's take a look back. If you flip to Exodus chapter 11, we'll just read a little bit and make a few pointed applications. Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And afterward he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord will give, and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel." And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his hand. So you see here, this is the final strike the Lord would bring upon Egypt at this time. The Lord here will lay waste to, and he will annihilate this nation by doing this, by slaying the firstborn throughout the land. A military victory unlike anything ever recorded in history. When all the young men in a nation are killed, that is, in a sense, a military victory. That's how the Egyptians would have understood it. They would have understood this, the death of all the firstborn in their nation, as an utter defeat of their gods by Yahweh on the battlefield. And this threatened strike would impact every single Egyptian family at every single level of Egyptian life. From the house of Pharaoh, king over Egypt, all the way down to the house of the slave girl at the hand of the mill. No one will escape the judgment of God when it falls upon the nation, no matter who you are. 
And in Exodus 20, verses 1 to 3, the Lord told Moses what Israel must do on the night chosen by the Lord to slay the firstborn in Egypt. They were to sacrifice a lamb and to take some of the blood of that lamb and apply it to the doorposts and the lintels of their doors as they ate that sacrificed lamb in the house on that night. And they were to eat it in a manner wherein they were prepared to leave in haste because the Pharaoh was about to drive the people out of the land in a hurry. We read that in Exodus 12, verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And why eat it in such haste? Exodus 12, 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The firstborn of any and all Egyptian households. And notice the text says man, meaning those struck down could have been any age, from child to adult. The criteria was firstborn. The firstborn in this day was considered the line through whom a family survived. The firstborn male in a family in this day was considered to be of primary importance for the continuing success of the family. And here's the Lord saying, I am going to take all of this away from Egypt as I execute judgments upon the nation against your so-called gods and reveal them to be nothing but wisps, nothing but powerless, non-existent entities. So Exodus 12 continues, verses 13 and 14. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You see, this event, this striking down of the firstborn throughout Egypt... The judgment of God that is about to fall upon this nation would be averted in Israel by the blood of a substitute painted on the door frames of their houses. By the blood of a substitute applied to the door frames of everyone's house who believed the word of God given to them through Moses. And when the destroying angel came to strike down the firstborn in Egypt, he would see that blood applied and would pass over that house and the terrible judgment of God would not fall upon them. As we read this narrative, the biblical account of the Passover and Israel's enslavement from Egypt, we see that God displays his power and his steadfast love for the people that he had chosen by delivering them from their misery and their oppression. While it is indeed a historical record of what actually took place in Egypt in those days, it also envisions, it also points forward to a deeper spiritual reality that would come to pass in the future as well. The Exodus was, in many ways, a rehearsal for an even greater deliverance to come. An even greater deliverance from an even more oppressive slave master than Egypt. 
for a greater deliverance, not only of Israel, but for people from every tribe and nation and tongue and language. The Passover is a picture for us of what would come to pass in the person and work of Jesus Christ, God come to us in the flesh, our perfect substitute, the Lamb of God, whose blood applied to our hearts takes away our sin. It's not simply that Egypt... It's not simply Egypt that finds or that found itself primed for the judgment of God for their rebellion. The biblical reality is that every single human being who has ever lived, we have, all of us, aside from Jesus himself, fallen short of God's glorious standard of absolute perfection. We've all fallen short of perfect conformity to his law. And for this reason, unless God rolls up his sleeves and acts on our behalf, like he did for Israel in the Exodus, unless God takes it upon himself to be the remedy for our situation, we, like Israel, will remain enslaved and oppressed by an even more brutal and tyrannical taskmaster than Pharaoh, the vicious and bloodthirsty tyrant we know as sin. Sin pays us the wages of death. The result of sin unforgiven is eternal torment under the wrath and judgment of God. Sin is our biggest problem. And unless God does something about it, we are all powerless to defeat it. But as you read, as we start reading in Matthew 26... One thing we need to know is this glory of glories, God is about to do something about it. Jesus will go and he will shed his blood at the cross and he will take upon himself the wrath of God due for you upon himself. And he will apply his blood, meaning the the saving benefits of his death to the doorposts and the lintels of your heart. And if you would, like Israel during the Passover, escape the judgment of God that is about to come upon the earth in the future, if you would escape the wrath of the destroying angel when God sends him out, if you would have Christ's blood applied to your heart, then trust Jesus right now for forgiveness. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and listen, like you heard already, you will be saved. If you truly believe in the name of Jesus, you are one of those set before him for whom he joyfully came to gather you up into his family. You are one who will enjoy the benefits of God for eternity. And as it was on the night of the first Passover in Exodus 12, 23, when that day of judgment comes, the Lord will pass, when the Lord passes through to strike the Egyptians... And he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts. The Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. When the Lord comes to judge the living and the dead, when he sees the blood of Christ applied to your heart by grace through faith, the destroyer will pass over you and you will instead be judged on the merits of Christ. You will be judged on the righteousness of Christ with which you have been clothed. And you will, because of everything Christ accomplished, applied to your account, hear those wonderful words, enter into the joy of your master. The fact that Jesus went to Jerusalem 
then to lay down his life on the Passover is an intentional picture. It's meant to tell us that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Passover pointed to and prefigured. Again, as he said to his disciples in verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up. That word for delivered up means he will be betrayed. He will be handed over into the custody of wicked men. He will be turned over. See, again, Jesus knows how it will come to pass and when it will come to pass. He knows and he declares that the wheels, they're already in motion and he is prepared for what is about to happen. And what is it that's about to happen in less than two days? Jesus said it. He'll be delivered up to be crucified. He will be put to death in the most shameful, humiliating, torturous method possible by being fastened and nailed to a cross and left there to asphyxiate and die in the sight of the people as the people insulted him and mocked him. Jesus will die the death of a criminal even though Jesus never sinned, not once in his whole life. The perfectly righteous Jesus will be killed so that all who believe in his name can have eternal life in that precious name. And as Jesus is revealing these things to his disciples in one conversation, Matthew lets us in in verse 3 on the fact that there was around this time another meeting or another conversation occurring between the chief priests and the elders of the people. You can read it in verse 3 and 4. Then the chief priests, then or at that time, the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Now the Apostle John, speaking to this event, he situates this meeting between the chief priests and the elders at or around the time of Lazarus being raised from the dead in John chapter 11. We read that in John 11, verses 45 to 53, where we read this. Many of the Jewish people saw the miracle and believed in Jesus. And so the chief priests gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day, they made plans to put him to death. And look at verse 57 if you're there. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So they had this meeting, and they plotted and planned to put Jesus to death, and then they sent out a stealth announcement to people in Israel. If you know where Jesus is, let us, let us know so that we can go get him. And the reason for this particular meeting, the one described in Matthew's Gospel also, was the growing popularity of Jesus. After he had brought Lazarus back from the dead, everyone everywhere was, in, was looking to Jesus. 
And even as they sought, under the leadership of that evil man Caiaphas, to kill Jesus, little did, what they, little did they know that what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Matthew tells us in verse 3 again, they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Now, they'd been committed to this course of action for a while now, because if you go back to Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, we read there that the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus how they might destroy him. So this has been on their radar for a while. But at this time, John tells us the religious leaders, they sent out word, they sent out orders to the people to bring news of Christ's location to them so they might arrest him. They hoped to seize Jesus by cunning, they hoped that if they could just get their hands on him, they could lay enough bla- charges of blasphemy against him that perhaps maybe they might turn the crowds against him. And while they were searching for Jesus, while they were bloodthirsty, while they were plotting for him, they also had the wherewithal to recognize that if they did it during the Passover, that might be a problem. And so they said in verse 5, but not during the feast or not during the Passover, lest there be an uproar among the people. See, they didn't want to cause a riot because the Jewish nation finding themselves under the rule of the Romans were frequently rioting, and then when when they would riot, then Rome would respond by bringing some of the Praetorian guards and whatever against them, and they would usually get crushed and quelled, and a lot of Jewish peoples would die. And these religious leaders, they wanted to maintain their privileges. They wanted to maintain their status in the Roman system, and so they were they decided to postpone any efforts or attempts to arrest Jesus at this time until the Passover was done. Because during the Passover feast, Jerusalem was stuffed and filled to the brim with people. And so any potential agitations that might be worse than normal, just based on the sheer numbers of people in the city at that time. And they also knew that at this moment, the crowds were still reeling and they were in awe over Christ's raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so while Jesus, just a mere six hours before he is arrested, his popularity seems to be at an all-time high. And so they consider the timing of their plot to arrest Jesus and think to themselves, it's probably best to wait. Now, I want you to notice two things about this. First... These crowds are so infatuated with Jesus and his miracle-working power at this moment. And in just a few short hours, in chapter 27, 23, it'll be these same crowds that are yelling, let him be crucified. In just a few short hours. He goes from the heights of popularity in the eyes of the crowds to let him be crucified. Early on in his ministry, in John chapter 2, we are told that many believed in his name because they saw all of the wonderful things that Jesus was doing. It says, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus knew that even though the crowds are adoring him in this moment, he would not entrust himself to them. He would not give himself over to those adoring crowds. He wouldn't organize his life or his ministry so as to hunt for the approval of the crowds as his primary aim or goal. 
Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, but how he went about accomplishing that purpose was never dictated by the tastes and the attitudes of the crowds following him. His seeking and saving the lost was always in accordance with the will and the word of his heavenly Father. And in this, Jesus is an example to us. He's an example for us. If you love Jesus, the crowds, the people around you, they are your mission field, they are your brothers and your sisters, but they're not your boss. Nor are their opinions and values and ideas the basis or the foundation or the governing authority for how you live your life as a Christian and how we live our lives as a church. All of that is as it was for Jesus, according to the will and the word of our Father in heaven. His will and His word is our charter. Because we know, right, that the crowds can and oftentimes do quite quickly turn against someone that they once loved, someone that they once held in high esteem. It doesn't take much. People can go from loving you one second to absolutely hating you in another, and it doesn't take much. That's why I'm so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm so thankful that the Bible uses the word agape and has said to describe the love of God as steadfast and loyal. Why I love when the Apostle Paul asks the question in Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The implied answer is no one. Now contrast that with another question. Who shall separate us from the love of the crowds? All it takes is one bad report. All it takes is one cultural misstep. I praise our Lord Jesus Christ for his unchanging love for his children. Another thing to note from verse 5 is this. You see the religious leaders plotting to arrest Jesus after the Passover feast is done. But God has other plans. And when the plans of God and the plans of man conflict, guess which plans went out? The appointments of the Lord always win. The God-appointed plan was that Christ's death would occur at the time of the feast of Passover. And so you got the Pharisees and the scribes saying, let's wait until after the Passover. you got the Lord appointing it to happen at Passover. When's it going to happen? And so everyone involved, they're all making their own decisions, but at the very same time, and this is one of the, the Bible's great mysteries, they're making their own decisions. At the very same time, they're doing what God's hand and plan has predestined to take place because God is in control. And the early believers, as they prayed for boldness and as they preached to the unsaved crowds, they made this clear. Acts chapter 4. There we read this, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And again, in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
So the Lord rules over absolutely everything. The Lord rules even over the wicked plans and plots of mankind. While they seek to thwart him and to destroy his purposes, the Lord oversees it all and conducts everything to his good and saving purpose. He made this most blessed news known to us in Scripture through the prophet Isaiah, for example, where we read in chapter 46, verses 9 to 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. The counsel and the plan of the Lord always comes to pass as the Lord appoints it to come to pass. What man intends for evil... God works according to the counsel of his will. God takes the evil intentions of men and he directs them towards his ultimate good. And nowhere is this reality more clearly displayed than in the betrayal of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well... I'm about to start on a whole new section that'll take much longer than six minutes. So, let's pray and ask our worship team to come up, and we will continue next week. Father, you are good and holy and righteous, and we thank you for the knowledge that you work all things together according to the counsel of your will. We thank you for hearing this morning, both in our time of communion and in our time seated under the word of God, that the love of Jesus Christ is steady and unchanging, that his blood shed, which is shorthand for his death, secures our salvation, provided we believe in his name. We thank you that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And we take comfort and we take solace in this fact at the times when we feel like how could Jesus love someone like me? We take solace in the fact that we are actually the joy that was set before him. He knew every single one of our faces, every single one of our lives, every single detail of every single one of our lives, and he still, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and despised the shame of all of it that we might be saved. Lord Jesus, I praise you for your love. And I pray that that love would be a comfort to us and a comfort for us as we live for you this week. And we pray this in his name. Amen.